Well, I invite you to open to James chapter 5, the last two verses. This is our last sermon in James. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, I will pick up in Psalm 119. And so we'll do several sermons through Psalm 119 and some of the other Psalms. But this morning we're looking at verses 19 to 20, James chapter 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Father, we pray now for your spirit to give us insight and understanding into your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for my 20 to 25 years of preaching throughout that time, two years here, I've mentioned from the pulpit while preaching many, many uh, great preachers that have helped me personally in my walk uh, with Christ and specifically in preparing my sermons. I think of those who have helped with outlines like the person who did that for me today, as you'll see. I I think of their commentaries that I've quoted uh, I've told their stories Men like St. Augustine and Martin Luther, John Knox, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and especially uh, John Calvin. Uh, the more contemporary pastors I've probably quoted more than the others, Charles Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, James Boyce, R.C. Sproul, and there is one living pastor I quote a lot of, it's John MacArthur. Well, these men have preached and pastored in different times. Uh, They preach and pastor in different cultures, different settings, different denominations, under different theological circumstances, and yet what they all have in common is this. When people in churches were wandering from the truth, these men that I named took a stand on the Scripture and brought sinners back from their wandering, saving souls from death and covering a multitude of sin. In truth, they were the embodiment of James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. That was their call. It was their passion. It, was defi- it defined their ministries. And for John MacArthur, as we know, still alive, um, he had the same when he faced up to governments and took a stand. But here, uh, the focus is on inside the church, the threat of insults, the threat of slander. They took all that, even the threat of death for some of the earlier preachers, They did not hold them back. It did not hold them back. One writer said, like a lighthouse in the midst of the fog and darkness of false teaching and moral decay, men like the ones I quoted who were making shipwreck of their faith led those who were making shipwreck of their faith back to a secure harbor of scriptural truth. And that's what James is calling us here in our passage. That's the focus. In a sense, he's continuing what... He he mentioned about sickness early on. However, now James is concerned with a greater sickness. It's the sickness of bad theology. And so with that image there of sickness in mind, uh, I want to take this outline that I came across of the passage under the following five headings. The people, the plight, the prognosis, the prescription, and the payoff. Whenever it's all the same letters, I usually take it from a Baptist. 
If it's long, I take it from a Presbyterian, but the people, the plight, the prognosis, the prescription, and the payoff. And so first, the people here. What, see, what makes these men that I mentioned earlier so fitting for the context here is that, as I said, John MacArthur had to deal with those outside the church. But for the most part, MacArthur and all the ones that have gone before us were confronting those who were compromising within the church. And that's James' point as well. He says, is anyone among you, among you, among the church? And so the people James is speaking to are those who profess to be Christians, but they have now strayed. They were in the church, and they were thought of as believers. If they're believers or not, it's not the point. The point is they were part of the body of Christ, and now they have wandered off. And so that's the people, which leads us to the plight. Look at verse 19. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, that word wanders is used in the Old and New Testament of those who depart from the path that God has laid before them. That's called them to follow. He kind of pictured the sheep wandering from the fold. However, the word also carries the idea of deceived. In fact, James uses that same word earlier in the letter in chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived, he says at the beginning of the letter. And now at the end of the letter, he comes back to the same idea. He, he's presenting the real possibility, and this is where we really need to take into account what's being said, of those in the church abandoning the faith, not losing their salvation, but rather showing their true colors, that their faith was never real in the first place. It's called apostasy. And this apostasy, this wandering, is a wandering from the truth, he says in verse 19. It, it, it's both doctrinal and moral. The Hebrews never separated the intellectual from the behavioral, the doctrine from the moral. They never separated two. In fact, it's often the case that moral wanderings produce doctrinal wanderings. And many change their doctrine to accommodate their desires and their immoral lifestyle. And so where we've had strong beliefs and statements about our theology, the world around us starts shaping these men and, and women in the church, and they change their theology to accommodate the world. Um, the Apostle Peter in fear of man, compromised his theology. The apostle Peter did it. Paul had to confront him. In Galatians chapter 2, uh, we're told that he opposed Peter to his face. Why? Because Peter stood condemned before, before certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fear, fearing the circumcision party. And so James, what James? James, here sends these men, and, and, and he was fine being with the, Jew, the Gentiles until these men came, and then he kind of, you know, pushed back. He wandered from the truth. He wasn't taking a stand on truth. He was fearing man. There's another example, Demas. Uh, he forsook Paul for moral reasons. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, 2 Timothy 4.10. Here he is a companion of the apostle Paul, and he deserted the faith. He wandered from the truth. 
He was flirting with the world, a moment of compromise, the fear of man over the fear of God. And what happens is you begin to wander away, wander morally, wander spiritually. This often happens to a lot of people, but it happens to college students a lot. They, they grew up in the church. They go off to college. They, they want to make friends. They want to fit in. They begin attending parties. They begin drinking. They compromise here. They compromise there. And slowly, they, they stop attending church because, you know, to be a Christian, you don't have to attend church, they tell themselves. And, then, and they don't see it coming. And before they know it, they're denying the truth. And usually they're denying the truth because if it was the truth, they would have to confront their own sin. But they, it starts with a little compromise, and then they're denying the faith. I remember when I was in Bible college, uh, my friends would come and visit me, uh, fill out the College of Bible, and when they would come from where they were coming, if you were driving up, I believe it was 95 at first, you would turn, and the road, if you didn't look, you would get off track, and you would get on this road. And all of a sudden, you'd be in the middle of nowhere, and remember, there wasn't any cell phones or GPS back then. And that little turn, that, that little deviation was the difference between arriving at the destination that you were intended to and being 45 minutes away from the destination. Just that little turn. Beware, James is saying, of the wandering, that little turn away to immorality. But it's also true of wandering doctrinally. In 2 Timothy 2, this is what Paul says, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. They're straying morally. But why? Well, Paul tells us their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. They were straying doctrinally, 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 18. So you can stray morally like Demas, or you can stray doctrinally like Hymenaeus and Philetus. Both are destructive for your faith. And, and, and it's a sickness in that imagery as I said, is a sickness that it's easy to catch. It's just one small doctrinal step, one compromise. I'm just going to compromise here with, with, uh, with the culture. And then eventually, it's a slippery slope, and you end up denying the Scriptures. It's happened to denominations. It's happened to churches where one step, and then eventually, they're not even teaching the Bible. Uh, or it's one small step morally in, in the wrong direction. It can lead you into the path of apostasy. So let me ask the obvious question. Are you wandering? Uh, would it, or, or maybe let me ask it a different way. Are you the type of person that says, I come to church, but, you know, uh, things like doctrine, they just divide. Just give me Jesus. That's all I need. I don't need doctrine, not realizing that's a doctrinal statement. Um, if you're that type of person, I don't need to know all this stuff, just love Jesus. Well, you're, you're, you need to beware. Uh, you've taken a step in the direction of apostasy. It doesn't mean you have apostatized uh, because you're struggling with understanding doctrine. It just means you're saying to yourself, I don't, uh, that's not important, and you'd be wrong. 
the passage here is warning everyone. Maybe you're flirting with sin, and you're comparing it to everybody else's sin out there, and you're saying, it's not that bad. And, and you, know, I, I, you know, it's just a little gossip. It's not like I'm having an affair or I murdered someone. And eventually, you, you, you get prone to saying things like that. It doesn't seem too bad. Well, you've taken a step towards apostasy. Again, the passage is warning everyone, pastors, elders, lay people alike. A person who does not persevere in the faith is no better off than an unbeliever. In fact, their prognosis is worse than the unbeliever. Look at our third point here. The sickness is so bad that in verse 20, we are told that it is potentially a sickness unto death. Sinclair Ferguson said, almost all the New Testament was written because of the danger and consequences of this sickness. Think about what the Bible says about those who have wandered from the truth. Remember, we're talking about people in the church that have wandered from the truth. He's not, he's not talking about, the Bible's not talking about people that have never heard the truth and other places don't deny the truth, never been the church. Um, but the people that are in the church that wander from the truth, they wander from the source of their forgiveness, 1 John 1, 6 and 7. And, and, and we're told, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice from sins. But what remains? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. You walk away from the only way of forgiveness. And then it said this person's last state has become worse than the first. Peter says this, for it would have been better for them never to have been known the way of righteousness than that ever knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It's just better off not knowing it at all, 2 Peter 2, 20 to 21. And think of what Jesus, how he describes the, those who have walked away. He says he will cast from his, he'll cast them from his presence. Revelation 2, 4 and 5. He will war against them, Revelation 2, 16. He will come against them like a thief, Revelation 3, 3. He will spit out of his mouth those who have abandoned the truth, Revelation 3, 16. That's the fate of those who wander from the truth. It's not to be taken lightly. People who stray down the path of immorality or down the path of false teaching, if they don't repent, it's not like, well, I used to believe the wrong thing once. But that's not what he's saying here. If you just turn away from the truth of the gospel. And so this should cause us all to reflect a little bit on our faith, the reality of our faith. Do we have true saving faith? Or, or are we more prone to stray and choose apostasy? Now, James at this point He's actually calling on the spiritually mature to reflect. He wants to move the spiritually mature, move you to grieve over the prognosis of the wanderer and move you to do something about it. He, he, he shares who these people are. He points out their problem. He tells you what's about to happen to them. But he's saying to you who are here that, that believe... You are the prescription. 
We have seen the people with the sickness. We, we have seen the problem wandering from the truth. We have seen the prognosis. But this, the prescription is you and me. We are the prescription. He calls you and me, not just the great reformers, not the great preachers I quote all the time, not even just the elders. It would seem fitting that he would say the elders. He said it earlier, if you're sick, call the elders. And, and he said to pray, and the elders will pray for you. But now he says, what? James says, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Who's he calling on? Someone, him, whoever. Someone, do something about this. And James says, here's the someone. It's you if you're a believer. You're still in the church. You're, you're still healthy spiritually. You know the truth. You have followed the narrow path. You hear, receive the truth. You do the truth. You know Jesus Christ personally. Your job, he's saying, your business is to be about guiding the wandering sinner back to the faith. You're the prescription for this. We see it everywhere. My understanding of the history of church, we see it here, the recovery of coming back to the true faith. People have wandered from the truth. How do we do it then? How, how do we participate in this? How do we restore a wandering sinner? Well, to help us with that, I want to look at two passages. I'm going to look at Galatians 6, 1 to 3. And then I'm going to look at 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26, and then I'll summarize the, the principles that we learn. Here's what Galatians 6 says. The context are people falling away. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Okay, here are the principles. You need to be spiritual yourself. You who are spiritual, says Paul in Galatians here. You must be growing in grace, living by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul just described in Galatians chapter 5. That must be you. You must be, confront these people, but you must do it with gentleness. Restore in a spirit of gentleness, says verse 1. It's not time for you to beat somebody over the head with the Word of God. You need to pull out your sword, and you need to bear the sword, the truth. But you remember, you're doing soul surgery. You need to be gentle, he says. And then he says, look, if you're going to go about doing this, you've got to be careful. You don't fall into the same temptation. You don't want to be led down the wrong path. I'm going to help them, and eventually you're part of them. That's why you need to be spiritually mature. You must be willing to bear their burdens, he says in verse 2. It's, it's going to take time. It's going to take patience. You can't just point at their faults. Now you're sinning. You have to actually minister to them and get to know them, understand them, bear their burdens. And you must be humble. This is implied when it says if anyone thinks he is something. The point is you're not. People will not accept correction or advice from an arrogant person. Be humble. That's the first verse. 
How about 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26? And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so here are some principles. Again, I'm going to repeat these. You must be kind and not quarrel. You must not be quarrelsome. You must be able to teach. You need to know the gospel and know it well enough to teach others. You must be patient. It says patiently enduring evil. They're not going to change overnight. They may, but they're most likely not going to. So you must be patient with them. You must be willing to confront and correct them with gentleness again, verse 25. They need to have their sin exposed but, but, and be corrected, but it needs to be done gently. And then tenth, you must pray. This is implied when you consider that Paul says God may perhaps grant them repentance. Only God can make the change in the person's heart. Only, only God can bring them back from wandering, and so we need to, to pray. And so ten principles. Again, I know you have them all memorized, but let me just repeat them for you. Be spiritual. Be gentle. Be watchful. Be willing to bear others' burdens. Be humble, be kind, be able to teach, be patient, be willing to confront and correct with gentleness, and be praying that they escape the devil's snare and come back to the truth. That's our calling. And there's a great example of this in the Gospels. It's Jesus. And he's dealing with Peter. Peter wandered from the truth. You remember, he denies Jesus three times, won't even uh, curse God, and, 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 and he, was, he fell even in the face of a young servant girl. And, and Jesus prayed for him. Jesus said, Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Luke twenty two thirty one. But he also confronts him after he, he strays. After the resurrection, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times. Why three times? Peter denied him three times. He was gentle with him. He was kind to him. He taught him. And now he said, look, I need you to go feed my sheep. And we know, most importantly, that he bore Peter's burdens on the cross. Peter denied Jesus. Jesus died for Peter and then restored Peter to fellowship after the resurrection. That's compassion. That's love. That's kindness. That's mercy. That's grace. That's our Savior. Christ is our sacrifice. First and foremost, he took our place, but he's also an example here for us. And so the baton has been passed. It is no longer Calvin. It's no longer Luther. It's no longer Whitfield. It's no longer Edwards. It's no longer the Apostle Paul. It, 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 rather, he sends you and me. It's up to you. It's up to me. In the power of the Spirit, whom Christ gives us to do the work of restoring the wanderer. That's our task, is to bring spiritual restoration and like we learned the other week, James says we should pray for physical res restoration. We should. 
And of course, like we learned the other week, we should long for relational restoration. We looked at that. But our greatest ministry is to be like Jesus to all the wandering Peters in our church. In the church. Doesn't necessarily mean just this church. We're to be that lighthouse who guides wayward sinners back to the safe harbor of the faith. We we need to be people who restore and help restore the relationships of these wanderers back with God. And there's a payoff for this. That's our fifth point and final point. James says in verse 20, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Did you hear that? What greater joy can you have than know that you were used by God himself to save someone's soul from death and cover a multitude of sins? Now, we know God's the one who saves sinners, and we know that Christ's blood is what covers our sin. But as Paul says, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, he says, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, covering their sin, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us, 2 Corinthians 5. You have the ministry of reconciliation. You are an ambassador to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. David says in Psalm 32:1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And you're the catalyst of that blessing, beloved. You who are strong spiritually, you who have been united to Christ, you who have embraced the gospel, you bear the image of Christ, and now you carry the message of Christ. The message that that Christ died as our substitute for sinners, that he rose for our justification. We proclaim that. It's not Calvin. It's not Luther. It's not Paul. And in one sense, it's not even Jesus, at least physically, of course. Of course, Jesus works through us spiritually, but Jesus isn't here on earth. It's you. It's me. We proclaim that message that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. There is no other way for someone to be saved but through the blood of Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, trusting in him alone. We have been entrusted with that message. We are God's ambassadors to bring wanderers back to the faith. And James here, well, he just ends. You notice he just, he just ends abruptly. But it's not really surprising when you remember who James is. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And while he was on earth, he didn't believe in Jesus. He thought Jesus was crazy at one point. Um, he experienced, though, the firsthand uh, acceptance and restoration from Jesus. He, he, he experienced the fruit of that restoration And so it's not surprising that he would close with an appeal to restore others. Throughout the letter, if you've been here throughout the series, uh, James has called us to what? Embrace true Christianity. Remember, true religion, true faith. I I I said to you, remember, he's always in our face. 
You know, he, he's always confronting us with our, with our sin. He, he's confronting us with the truth over and over again. He calls us to examine our lives to see if our faith is genuine. It's amazing to me on the surface of things that this is most people's favorite letter. Because they don't like it when I yell at them to repent of their sin, but James can get away with it, right? So, so you, you, they, they love this, but at the same time, he's been in our face. But he ends here, and it tells you what his, where his heart is. His heart desire throughout has not been to condemn. His heart's desire has been to restore, to restore the wayward sinner, to restore the doctrinally confused, to restore the morally bankrupt, to restore them to the living God through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And that, beloved, should be our heart desire, that it would be our passion, that it would be our purpose, that it would be our practice to patiently and gently restore the wanderer to Christ. That's how he ends the letter. Well, I'm going to end my series, this sermon in our series, by telling you a story. Someone that I told you that we mention a lot, if you're Presbyterians, about John Calvin. Calvin was a great theologian. People know him as a theologian mainly. He was also a great preacher. Uh, what they don't know as much is he was also a great pastor. But one writer says, these things alone cannot account for the massive fruit that resulted from his ministry. For people that don't even like Calvin, they're influenced by Calvin. Our government is influenced by Calvin's understanding and teaching. Calvin was amazing, but he was only a man. And he was a very weak man. He was very sickly. Persecuted always. Calvin, they asked him to come to Geneva, and he goes to Geneva, and then they throw him out. And then years later, I want to say four, but I, I don't remember exactly. Four years later, they call him to come back, and what he does is he gets up and just picks up the last verse. It's as if he was preaching this verse, and he got done 19. They booted him. He comes back and goes, okay, now let's look at verse 20. And he focused on the Word. And, 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 and so what you learn from this is that he was just a man of the Word. He loved the Word. But what was his secret? Of course, his, his desire to know the word was a secret. And the fact that he taught it, the fact that he lived it is one of his secrets. But undergirding the tr- this truth, from the beginning of his walk with Christ, we don't hear much about him. He doesn't talk about himself much. Psalm one, his commentary on the Psalms, he mentions his conversion. Uh, but from, the, from that moment when he was converted and, and to the very end of his life on earth, he, he, he set before man as the very purpose of his existence. He said, a zeal to illustrate the supremacy and majesty of the glory of God in Christ. He, he, he basically said, I make, made it my life desire to live the way James tells us to live, to the glory of God. When he was only 30 years old, he, he describes an imaginary scene of himself at the end of his life. I don't know how old Calvin thought he would live. He didn't live, he was in his 50s when he died. Um, but he, he, he imagined a scene at the very end of his life. And, and he, he prays to God as if he's talking to God at the end of his life. And he tells them, Lord, the thing at which I chiefly aimed 
for which I most diligently labored was that the glory of your goodness and justice might shine forth in an arresting and commanding way that the virtue and blessings of Christ may be fully displayed to others. He, he prayed at 30 that his whole life would display Jesus' glory so others would see and believe. And it's the very thing that James wants from us. And, and it's the very thing that I pray will be true of us here, individually, corporately. That's true. We have a saying in our bulletin, we're the beacon on the hill, that we would shine like a beacon, that we would shine forth in a commanding and, and, and an arresting way the virtue and blessings of Christ, that He, not us, He may be fully displayed to others. That's what James wants from us. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. May people see Jesus in us. And may the wandering sinner return to the faith. In Christ's name, amen.